Bringing you closer to the experts, activists and leaders deriving positive climate change. This is The Money Show, of course, and it's featuring COP28 in Dubai, brought to you by Vodacom Group. Nigel Beck was at the uh, COP28 a couple of days before I got there, and I thought it was really interesting today, Nigel, uh, to not only have att- attended COP28 in Dubai, but it all comes to a head tomorrow, by which time participants have got to issue a joint statement, but already it looks like it's going to be a vastly watered-down statement on what had been hoped last week. Instead of committing the world to phasing out fossil fuels, it's likely to say we commit to lower consumption over time, which feels a bit like what COP is co- accused of doing, a COP out. Nigel? Was that a question? <laughs> yes. Is is it a cop out this time round, Nigel? Um, well, I, I mean, I think Bruce. It always happens. You know, you come to the end of cop. You, you've got two days of, of hard negotiations after essentially two weeks, and um, everybody's essentially cramming to to get some type of um, agreement in place. Um, you've also got various different stakeholders. You know, emerging markets, developed countries coming with different perspectives. Uh, I tend to find you know something happens closer. So, so I, I expect something to happen tomorrow. I expect there to be a bit more progress. Um, there seems to be normally some type of um, uh, agreement closer to the actual final deadline. So essentially working late through the night. But, you know, I would agree with you, that, you know, essentially if we're not seeing much progress, um, you know, COP's been discussing the same for, 20, for 28 years, um, we do need to see a little bit more, um, I guess, movement in the space. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an argument, I suppose, that the oil producers put forward and they say, hold on a second, but our economies depend on it. In the case of Saudi Arabia, for example, and Saudi Arabia has been the leader on this initiative to try and water down the final statement, uh, 70% of its export uh, income comes from oil and gas. Half of its GDP is reliant on fossil fuels. You can't expect these guys to give up without a, without a fight. Yes, I mean, I think you're right. And, and, and I think, you know, there was obviously a lot of debate around uh, this year's COP being hosted in Dubai, and obviously it's got a very fo- strong kind of uh, fossil fuel economy. But I think essentially they're a particularly important stakeholder in this, in this discussion. You know, the, the fossil fuel companies, the oil and gas companies need to be at the table. They need to be um, coming up with credible transition plans that need to be implementable over, say, the next, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, so I think it's important that they are party to the discussion. Ideally, you don't want it to be watered down, but I do think they're a credible um, stakeholder in the discussions. Absolutely. The big discussion is the removal of carbon from the atmosphere. And they seem to be saying, hold on a second, but yes, you can produce carbon as long as you suck it out of the atmosphere. And I don't know how much time you had in the so-called green zone, which is where all of the innovations get shown off. And there were some pretty impressive innovations about capturing carbon out the atmosphere, burying it in the sand, literally burying it in the sand, um, uh, for some sort of future date, which is unclear. But I wonder if we got the technologies at a scale that is needed to decarbonize by what the UN says is a 43% reduction or the equivalent of a 43% reduction in, in carbon emissions by, by 2030. Yes, I think, you know, the, the, the conversation about carbon capture, removal and storage has been, been ongoing for, for, for quite a few years now. Um, you know, the technology is not that proven at this stage. Uh, I think there's a fair amount of R&D that's being put into this um, and we are seeing progress, but I don't think we've got the, got the kind of silver bullet just yet. Um, I think my 
my suggestion would be probably over the next five to seven years, I think we will probably get to a position where, you know, kind of man-made carbon capture and storage do become a, a proper reality and can be, I guess, tacked onto the sides of coal-fired, you know, power plants, you know, um, oil and gas production, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then we will see a proper decarbonisation. So you you hold you, do you hold comfort in the fact that the the technologies are good and moving at a fast pace because I was blown away by the amount of innovation on the sidelines of COP the sort of stuff that says okay while the politicians and the the vested interests may be lobbying and talking to each other and finally maybe getting to a solution one day. I'm not sure that that's the solution. I kind of felt that the solution to carbon and the problem was the innovators, you know, just on the on the periphery of the negotiations. Yes, I think you're 100% right. And unfortunately, I get a lot of time um, in the green zone. I, I spent uh, an afternoon there on my way out. And I would agree with you, there's, there's a lot of um, innovation being um, driven through kind of the private sector. And I think, you know, that's there's a lot of criticism of COP um, and there's a lot of criticism around the conversations that happen at COP. But I think... You know, COP's a particularly useful platform for bringing the right stakeholders together, and that includes the private sector, who are doing quite a lot around kind of climate finance, coming up with innovation, as you say, uh, around um, essentially solutions that are going to be relevant um, in the next 20 to 30 years, and relevant, particularly relevant for kind of a, a green economy. Um, so I, I, I was actually impressed with what I was seeing as well. Uh, I wonder whether the success of a, of a gathering like COP, where there are 197 different countries and multiple vested interests and multiple concerns and worries about the future, whether if we finish COP28 where nobody's entirely happy, the oil lobby's not happy and the green lobby's not happy, whether that's probably the best result that we can get in a world where compromise, unfortunately, on this process to decarbonizing or lowering carbon emissions or lowering the amount of carbon in the atmosphere is one of negotiation and compromise, even though it feels like we're a little bit short of time on that front. So I don't think you're right. You know, you, you tend to get to a, a watered-down agreement um, where, where potentially everybody's not, not necessarily happy. But I think what it does is, is, is certain parts and fragments move off and they go and work over the next year, you know, come back at kind of COP29 and, and, and you will have seen progress, for example, around the carbon markets. I think there's quite a lot of work that's been, been debated around carbon markets, for example, Article 6, um, allowing trade between different countries. You know, there's been a lot more discussion around, for example, nature and climate, which is also becoming quite important. You know, how do you kind of um, uh, interrelate uh, the obvious biodiversity and ecosystems in, into the climate discussion. Now, now some of these are coming to the fore, and what you'll see is you'll see groups moving off and focusing on those that are relevant to them and driving them forward. And I think you'll see progress in pockets, uh, but you might not see progress in the overarching picture that you're talking about, but actually progress in pockets that kind of drive us in the right direction uh, one way or the other. Are the expectations of the climate lobby just too high in terms of expecting a world to dramatically switch off one source of energy and dramatically switch on another because there are some people in the world who would have us decarbonize immediately through eliminating the use of all fossil fuels and that is not reliable yeah uh, bruce i think you know obviously everybody's everybody's uh, open to their own opinion on this and i i do think in certain instances the expectations of an essentially overnight decarbonization are somewhat unrealistic. 
uh, you know, the view that we can essentially turn off all coal-fired power stations, kind of oil, oil and gas immediately in, in, in a kind of move forward, um, I don't think is, re- is reasonable. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, civil society organizations that believe that is that is the only way forward. I think, you know, there's something of a middle ground. You know, I think directionally we need to move in that direction, but we do need to do it in a kind of a, a just transition in an organized manner. Nigel, thank you very, very much indeed for chatting to us this evening. Nigel Beck, who is the head of Sustainable Finance and ESG Advisory at RMB, was also at COP28 in uh, Dubai last week. We missed each other on the ground. Uh, I was flying in, he was flying out. But yeah, the European, uh, the the former Ireland president, Mary Robinson, who today is the chair of the so-called elders, uh, was really accusing Saudi Arabia last night, Saudi Arabia and other oil producers, of holding the entire process to hostage. And I think it's quite understandable that Saudi is protecting its fossil fuel interests. It's the basis of... 50% of GDP, 70% of export revenues. And yes, they've really slowed down progress in eliminating fossil fuels for the last three decades. But what else do we expect them to do, quite frankly, um, if that is a primary source of income for their economies? Even though, as somebody pointed out, I think it was in the Guardian newspaper today, that uh, you know oil, resources, uh, oil reserves in Saudi Arabia are plentiful. But um, you've got rising temperatures across Saudi Arabia, you've got falling groundwater supplies. But the sense there is that technology will provide the solutions if a drop-off in consumption will not. Vodacom Group is committed to reducing its environmental impact and helping decarbonize society as part of its purpose in the DRC. Vodacom's legacy sites have been upgraded with solar panels to reduce dependence on diesel generators. 817 rural sites are running with solar panels, helping to prevent 20,000 tons of CO2 emissions every year. The company has also signed a power purchasing agreement with Nuru. It's a DRC solar-based mini-grid company to provide solar energy for two sites in Faraja and Tadu. To markets, to markets, to markets we go. Turned out to be a positive day on the JSE by the time everything all had been tabulated and counted. Arthur Karras is a portfolio manager at Macro Solutions at the Old Mutual Investment Group. And yeah, for spending most of the day in the red, we ended in the black, I suppose. Arthur, we should be grateful for small gains on a day where there wasn't too much appetite for investing practically anywhere. Yes, we had some strong performances out of the likes of um, Northern Harmony MTN. I think that helped the market into positive territory, uh, considering that uh, one of the largest stocks in the market, Anglo-Americans, continued its weakness um, from Friday. But uh, we're pretty much headed into a week where we're all waiting for the U.S. inflation number tomorrow and uh, looking to see what direction that provides for us for 2024. Did I see on the weekend that the S&P 500 last week hit a 12-month high? I think it did, didn't it? I think it did, yes. But the market has been very strong. So there's no question that the, um, that the key U.S. indices have been very strong. It is a bit unbalanced. It's, it's driven by a handful of the very large tech stocks, which is why you hear these arguments about people saying, well, we have got expensive shares, but the entire market is not expensive. So you, you do have to go into a little bit more detail there to understand what's actually happening. 
No, exactly right. And it is a handful. I mean, they've got the Nuspers effect in a handful of shares on the S&P 500. We had Nuspers as a disproportionate uh, contributor, of course, uh, to our market for, for many, many years. Uh, we're still 10% below the peak we reached in February. February, the market rocketed all the way to 80,000 for no rhyme or reason. And ever since then, we've been languishing. And uh, I wonder how much of it is to do just simply with the inflation picture and the inflation outlook and this obsession, as you just put it now, to what's happening to American inflation, because that's, I suppose, going to be the be-all and end-all of 2024. And it runs into a whole bunch of sectors. So um, you, if, you, if we're going to have a hard landing next year, if the economies, global economies slow down a lot, that's going to weigh heavily on our resource stocks. You can't expect a a resource um, price recovery, if you see wheat markets there. Um, you'd expect a different kind of share to do well. If, if inflation struggles to come down, then you'd expect the companies that are better at passing on inflation to do better. Um, so depending on that inflation outlook, and it's feeding in, into interest rates, which feeds into the banks, um, any number of those things, you've got a whole bunch of pictures that you know are dependent on how those things play out. So the most benign outlook is for a soft landing, where you have um, where you have inflation coming off while growth slows, but we don't head into recession, and that that would allow markets to stay relatively strong um, and interest rates to kind of start ticking off because inflation is coming down. And that's a, you know that that that's the kind of Goldilocks scenario that some people are holding out for. I did see a comment out of the UK today saying that it's possible that there might not be interest rate cuts in that economy until 2025, 2026. I mean, that seems unbelievable, doesn't it? I mean, it seems inconceivable. Uh, but this is one of the big research bodies in the UK looking at the inflation outlook, looking at the fact that, yes, it's been tamed, but not necessarily contained. I wonder what you, if your view has shifted at all on the outlook for interest rates. I think that, that that's a that, that's a very good point because the, the these um, the various interest rate outlooks are dependent on the inflation outlooks. None of the central banks um, can be seen as being weak on inflation, so they do need to have the inflation rate in their own country coming down. And and while they're all linked, you know, sometimes you have oil prices going up, pushing up everyone's inflation outlook. They they they, they all are, are behaving in their own individual way. So, for example, one of the views that has changed in the last couple of days as people are saying well Europe is looking so weak and inflation is coming down quite quickly there they might they might be pushed to cut before the US which everyone thought that the US was going to lead the cycle down so there's still quite a bit of data that needs to come out um, and, and quite a bit of um, uh, deliberating by the central banks before we can see who's going to start this who's going to be going down first but I, I would say that it's it, it's it's far from clear exactly how this is going to play out but the one thing that we do believe is that it's, that rates are not going to go down as fast as what they went up. That it's going to be a higher for longer scenario, and that rates will come down far more slowly because, you know, you don't want to now overstimulate these global economies by cutting rates too quickly, and then you're back again to where you st- where you started.
Yeah, I mean, that view of the UK rates going to be coming down in 2026 is from the business lobby group CBI. Um, and they're saying that the Bank of England will not cut interest rates until 2026 at the earliest. And that's astonishing because, I mean, lots of speculation that we'd start getting interest rate cuts in the first quarter, no, second quarter, no, third quarter, no, fourth quarter next year. There is so much uncertainty. And I suppose the, the best clarity we're going to get this week is from the US Fed, the European Central Bank, and I think the Bank of England, all three of which are going to be talking about interest rate decisions this week. I think they're all coming out. So it's the language of the central bankers, which is really going to determine our mood into 2024. Yes. We've had the view for some time that, that rates are going to come off slower than what the, the more bullish um, market participants believe. But I think the, the danger is that you, 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 know, you, you base your entire view on the, on, the, on the latest data point that's come out and, and then you get you know, pulled left and right and up and down, as it were. Um, a little while ago, we did think that you know, the kind of consensus was that we would see rate cuts quite early in 2024. And I think that's gradually been pushed out a bit further, partly based on the comments made by the likes of Jerome Powell saying, you know, don't get too excited. It's going to take, oh, it's going to take some time. Uh, can we get a little bit excited about what's happening in the South African domestic economy? Because we can't, I don't think, in retail and in banking. Those shares were under pressure today. But one little outlier was Ital Tile. Um, they did exceptionally well during COVID as in that mini building boom that happened as people renovated their houses and retiled and reshaped their homes. Then everybody in that sector took an incredibly bad knock. They seem to be making a bit of a comeback, however, based on today's update. Tough to, tough to bring that back to the update. They did mention that their sales were down and that they see things as being, as being quite tough. It's a well-run business. I don't think you need to be concerned about, about a period of, 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 of weak sales. Um, the thing to note there is that, uh, that, the, that the amount of shares, about 17,000 shares traded on the day. So it's not necessarily indicative of, 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 of what the overall market thinks about, about the share price. You know, sometimes these smaller companies can move quite dramatically on a small amount of trade. I think normally they trade a couple of hundred thousand shares a day. So it was a small trade that potentially moved the share price, and we need to see if that if it sticks there um, as we go through the week. So don't get too excited in the short term. Thank you, Arthur Karras, Portfolio Manager at Macro Solutions at the Old Mutual Investment Group. Today's markets, yeah, not the most sparkling of sparkly days. Certainly the currency coming under pressure once again. And that's supportive of the global tone, that global mood, which is don't expect interest rates to be cut in developed economies anytime soon. And certainly as far as our market is concerned, that then pushes out expectations for us to get some interest rate relief as well. Interest rates, of course, are sitting at multi-year highs, multi-decade highs um, on uh, South African markets, courtesy of the Reserve Bank responding nice and early, keeping inflation in check as best as it could. But so much of our inflation, of course, has been driven by the failure of logistics and the failure of uh, the state to keep costs under control in terms of electricity and transport and all of that sort of stuff, um, that a lot of people are really fed up with the South African Reserve Bank. And the South African Reserve Bank, somebody sent me an email the other day that said, oh, you keep insisting that the Reserve Bank is right to raise interest rates. I'm not saying that they're right. I'm saying it's the only tool that they've got um, with which to fight inflation. And so if the only tool, if the, what is it? If the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail.
Susan Comrie is with us, investigative journalist at Amabungani Centre for Investigative Journalism. And it's interesting, isn't it, Susan? I mean, we look at the state-owned oil company Petro SA using a foreign lender to help it restart its Mossel Bay refinery. Russia's Gazprom Bank, the third biggest lender as far as I can tell from Russia. It's uh, been subject to Western sanctions over that country's invasion of Ukraine nearly two years ago. And now the South African government is keen to sign a deal with Gazprom Bank. Um, A curious funder, I suppose, considering the state of the world that we're in, Suzanne. Good evening. Hi, good evening, Bruce. Yeah, it's a fascinating one. I mean, one of the questions that uh, I put to Petro SA today when it held a press conference was, look, can we just be clear of Gazprom Bank or are we signing a deal with Gazprom? Because... Uh, you know, the cabinet had referred in its statement, uh, you know, they had described this as effectively a deal with, with Gazprom itself, which is uh, the Russian state-owned oil company. Now, it looks like um, Gazprom Bank essentially, you know, is, is kind of coming in as the sort of, uh, as the face of the deal. Um, but essentially, it would be a, a massive kind of investment, um, as well as a technical refurbishment of the gas to liquids refinery. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. I mean, South African lenders, of course, are finding it harder and harder and harder to lend to fossil fuels businesses, but no such constraints on the Russians. They will fund almost anything, it would seem. But it is curious as to why a state-owned enterprise like this is cozying up to a Russian lender in the current global environment, in which I think South Africa is neutral still in the battle against Ukraine. Well, I guess that's, um, that, that's up for debate, where, how neutral we really are. I mean, look, Gazprom um, and a number of Russian entities have been knocking on Petro's A's door for a number of years. Uh, you know, we have this kind of potential for gas industry to expand in South Africa, and they really see that as, uh, as an important area they'd like to invest in. We've had numerous proposals for Gazprom Bank to provide gas uh, for the refinery. We've had proposals for them to, um, to, to build an, an onshore regasification hub um, in the Eastern Cape. This one, what seems to have happened is that Gazprom Bank approached Petros A with a proposal about restarting this refinery. Now, based on that unsolicited bid, Petros A then went out, wrote a tender, which lo and behold, uh, Gazprom Bank was the only bidder that qualified. From the internal documents we've seen, there were 20 bids that were received, the only one that made it past the technical evaluation phase was Gazprom Bankstead. There was a sense of the bazaar at COP28 last week. Vladimir Putin turned up not at COP28, but next door in Abu Dhabi um, and was chatting to the Sultan there about oil. And then he popped across to Saudi Arabia to talk about oil. And today we get the news out of COP28 that the Saudis have led their oil-producing allies into a refusal to sign up to a a pact to to do away over time with fossil fuels and rather than do away with it, thin down consumption of fossil fuels. And that does, I suppose, throw into a new perspective the ability for 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 companies like for example, Petro SA and for the Namibians, for example, which have found huge reserves of, of fossil fuels off their coastline uh, to persist and to continue exploiting these reserves for the, for the future. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if one looks at, uh, you know, Petros A, the ambitions of that entire group, the Central Energy Fund, um, you know, they, they haven't been shy about, um, you know, making clear that they see a massive gas play in South Africa and that they really want to be at the forefront of it. Um, you know, you'll remember that one of the things that former ESCOM CEO Andre Duresa had raised was, you know, these sort of insistent letters that he kept getting from the Central Energy Fund to say, hand over some of the, the power stations that you want to close so that we can refire them with gas. Um, there's huge ambitions. Um, and absolutely no transparency going on around this. You know, the um, Petros A has, is sort of notorious for, for refusing to disclose any information regardless of, uh, you know, of, of its requirements in terms of, um, <clears throat> in terms of government procurement laws. Uh, again, as you mentioned, on the climate angle, you know, it feels like we have Petros A and the Central Energy Fund you know, these entities sitting under the DMRE going off in their own direction, um, not taking cognizance of where we're at in terms of our, our climate um, obligations. So it's fascinating. We, we really are, you know, our policy is going in two very opposite directions. Um, and it seems to be very much one under ESCOM and one under um, the DMRE and, and the FOE. And again, just how reliable we are as a global partner, because we go off to COP last week. We're saying, look, we need more money to help with the just transition. So gimme, gimme, gimme um, money after midnight. And then suddenly we've got a state-owned company picking a firm facing global sanctions. And Petro SA says, well, it doesn't think it'll fall foul of Western sanctions. It just strikes me as... We want Western countries to support us. We want them to back us. We want them to put their money behind us. Yet we go then and do deals with people who are being sanctioned by those very Western countries. It does smack of a a, a very blatant and open contradiction. I mean, it's an interesting one because, you know, there's, there's nothing that sort of prevents us from um, from entering into transactions with Gazprom Bank from Russian with with these Russian entities, but those decisions have consequences. Um, you know, and that was sort of very clearly spelled out to Petro SA in the in the sort of legal opinions that they received when they were wondering about whether they could go ahead with this. Um, you know, they, part of the problem with how they've run this tender is that you have 20 companies submitting bids. Now, obviously, some of those companies are just going to be taking a chance. But you nonetheless have, you know, some quite serious entities putting forward bids. But because they haven't met this sort of quite strange evaluation criteria to an absolute T, they get eliminated, their bids aren't even considered, and the only name that comes forward through that process is, is Russia's Gazprom Bank, which comes with consequences. Whether that means sanction consequences, you know, the risk of secondary sanctions, it's an it's a unlikely risk but it is there and the consequences would be absolutely catastrophic, Um, or whether it comes with with more kind of subtle consequences about those other transactions, as you point out. You know, when we're going and asking for money, are people going to be that willing? It just doesn't look like PetroSA has really taken, you know, the, the job that they're doing terribly seriously. How binding is this contract? Is it signed and sealed and yet to be delivered? Is it something that's got to be considered at other levels of, of government? Is it something that could be undone should government feel the need for it to be undone? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. So essentially where we're at is 
PetroSA has selected Gazprom Bank as the preferred bidder. Now, they have agreed that they will jointly over the next four months develop a business case um, and present that to PetroSA again, um, or rather to Kavanaugh again, for a final investment decision to be taken in April next year. So we won't know for sure if the full $3.8 billion that we want to take from $200 million, if that is going to flow until that decision is taken in April next year. However, one of the criteria that helped uh, Gazprom Bank to be selected was their willingness to put up up to $5 million right now um, to help that sort of business case to be developed. So essentially, we're talking about roughly 100 million rand um, that will, in all likelihood, start flowing, start being spent on this process uh, for them to analyze whether it is, in fact, a business case to, to go ahead. Susan, thank you for explaining it to us this evening. Susan Komri is with Amabungani. She is an investigative journalist and, of course, one of the country's top investigative journalists giving us that explainer this evening. Toby Shapchak, the Chief at Stuff Studios, he's standing by for us this evening. It's good to have him on The Money Show tonight. And I was looking at, uh, as I was coming through Dubai, um, at uh, the duty-free and the wide array, the huge array of headphones and earphones and earpods and earbuds and I walked away shaking my head there was nothing to fall out of my ears because I hadn't bought anything because I was just befuddled by it and I only wish we'd had this conversation last week because then you could have told me which ones to buy Toby which are the world's best earbuds or at least amongst the top earbuds in the world sure I mean don't ask me a tough question or anything um (laughs) <laughs> uh, the best. I mean, it's a, you know, it's funny that when, when people say, what is the, what's your favorite movie or favorite book? I always go for a top five. It's not because I can't choose, Bruce. It's because, you know, how do you choose the best, uh, movie or earpods, uh, earbuds, ear pods, airpods, sorry. Listening devices. Apple. So if you're yes. in the Apple universe, then, then it's much easier to have airpods as opposed to earbuds, which, Define the entire category of things, um, but what's what's interesting is that uh, Jabra are they they I think they're the best maker of these of these small earbuds. Um, they made the very first uh, or the first generation. They really pioneered this Bluetooth, uh, these these very brilliant little earbuds and how they how they communicate between each other uh if you're in the apple universe it's very hard to not use apple's products because they sing so nicely with everything blah 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 they you know work so well but what uh what i've been really impressed with in terms of jabra and i mean samsung have their own earbuds as well so so the fact that jabra is competing against two brands that have their own smartphones to sell against and they still do so well is in of itself uh, a very good sign. So I tested the Elite 8 Active a little while ago um, and spoke about them uh, probably six weeks ago. But we, we had the Elite 10 uh, in, the stu- in the stuff studios. And uh, what we were amazed by is how comfortable they are. Now, of course, everybody cleaned the cleaned the earbuds with uh, um, isopropanol, which, you know, is good old rubbing alcohol. That's why I didn't have to buy any hand sanitizer during when COVID hit because I had a big bottle of <laughs> isopropanol, which us geeks love because it doesn't perish plastic on products. Oh. Uh, so Jabra said so they scanned 
over 22,000 ears, Bruce, to develop this design. And, and you can feel they're very comfortable. They don't stick into your ears too much. They each weigh 5.7 grams. They have those very specific silicone plugs for a, a more exact fit. Uh, they're probably the most comfortable earbuds we've tested at stuff. That's quite a statement. Um, you know, they're great for workouts. So, you know, not necessarily you and I, Bruce, but uh, I, uh, I just think they, 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 they slightly more than the, the eight active, which are three and a half. These are 5,000 rand, but they, they're still very, very good quality. I must say, I'm going to, I'm going to try to start swimming again, Bruce, next year. Um, and I'm going to try a pair of these elite eight actors. They've got an IP68 rating, which means they can go underwater or a meter, a half a meter underwater or a meter underwater what? for half an hour. Yes, that's what it is. Um, apparently if you swim with the cap and they fall out your ears, then the cap catches them. But, um, that's quite a thing. I must say as a, as a quick aside, I, uh, you know, I've swum lots in my life, especially when I was at school. But in this age of audiobooks and podcasts, I mean, those endless boring hours in the in the pool are hopefully going to be filled with something to listen to. So in the near future, I want you to just brace yourself, Bruce. I'm going to start testing uh, uh, headphones to swim with or earbuds to <laughs> swim with. No, but it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's a perfectly logical innovation in the world of earbuds. Um, you, you, know, yes. you put your device down on the side of the pool, the, the Bluetooth should have a decent enough range. If you're in a 25-meter pool, you're not deep diving down yeah. deep. You've got your swimming cap on. These things are being held in place. Um, you should very well get a decent signal and be able to, even if it is just some sort of, I don't know, Jim Bunny shouting at you going, one, two, three, breathe, two, three, breathe, whatever it might be. Um, you can see, I haven't done much of that. Um, but no, no, it, me it's, neither. It's, but it's I, massive. I, I must say that uh, the thing that fascinates me about Jabra is they, is they, they made their bones making over-ear headphones. Uh, and, and most, a lot of people, a lot of call centers, a lot of the people in call centers use Jabra Bluetooth headphones. I've tried a range of them. They're really excellent. And, and the, you know, the, the, this is what you get. All of that technology ends up in these little things that weigh 5.9 grams and go in your ears. And, and I'm sorry I didn't tell you about these uh, before you went to Dubai. Um, but, you know, Bruce, you don't, you, don't, you, know what, you don't have to be Jewish to get wholesale. You just have to have one Jewish friend, you know. Oh, okay. Got you, got you. But now, listen, Toby, um, I was also looking at all of these other ones. And, you know, you, like, you've spoken to us about the, the Bose noise-canceling headphones and all of those sorts of things. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and just saying he bought himself a very expensive pair of noise-canceling headphones. He didn't mention the brand. Uh, he just said he wore them for about half an hour and took them off and hasn't worn them again because they just made his ears too hot. He just didn't like the fact that he, you know, he wasn't walking in snow in Norway. He didn't need to keep his yeah. ears warm. And these things, which yeah. were wonderful, that were beautiful sound, and he couldn't hear a thing other than the sound he wanted to hear. But he just found them too blim and hot. I suppose that's where the earbuds have got the advantage then over over the all-encompassing earphones. Exactly, and it's funny you mention it, or it's funny your your friend discovered it. But I find the same. You know, if I'm walking through an a, a a uh, an airport. I don't like to have over ears. I prefer to have in ears because it's 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 just easier to hear more, or take them out, or or use them. I tell you the difference between over ears. I'm not a fan of Bose, by the way, Bruce. I've I've only ever used Sennheiser, and, and the 
part of the reason is because if you look at what every pilot on a plane wears, uh, and if there's definitely a, a power user in noise cancelling headphones, it's going to be someone who flies a, a, a Boeing, you know, seven hours, 10 hours at a time, 16 hours. So I've always used Sennheiser noise cancelling headphones and I, I, I made a terrible mistake. I flew to do a talk in, in Durban and I left my noise cancelling headphones at home. Uh, I was trying to travel light. Part of my, I've spoken about this before, just using an iPad instead of a, of a, of a computer. And I took a very thin laptop bag and I thought, you know what? I'm going to go with arts noise cancelling headphones. It's only what an hour flight to Durban. And I regretted it. I, I, I immediately remembered how incredible the noise cancelling technology is. But what's amazing, Bruce, is that is now available to earbuds. Uh, I can't remember if these, if these ones, Elite 10 specifically do it. I think they do. Active noise cancelling, ANC. Can you believe it? Sounds like a political party or an app. <laughs> Active noise cancelling, uh, picks up the sound waves and, and creates frequencies that cancel out the noise as opposed to passive, which is just, you know, that silicone yeah. plug plugs up the noise from getting into your ear. Uh, and that's, and that's, that's remarkable. You know, in that, in that case, lots of people don't like those over the ears. They push on your ears. They, if you wear glasses like I do, they can be uncomfortable. Um, so yeah, what, what can I say? We live in a, we live in a glorious world of, of brilliant, um, air buds, which have a secondary purpose. I'll have you know, I went to see Dave Matthews last night and it was just too loud. Huh? I don't want to sound like an old fuddy duddy. It was too loud. I put my little <laughs> AirPods in and I listened to the music and I, and it, you know, didn't, uh, uh, uh overstress my, my hearing or my nervous system. Don't call me old Bruce. I've, 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 can I think it? <laughs> Toby Shapshak, thank you very much indeed, the Chief at Stuff Studios. Toby Shapshak this evening, uh, reviewing for us the Elite 8 Active, which was the previous ones that he had tried for us, and then the more expensive 5,000 Rand Elite 10s. He says they're excellent, especially for active people. And here's the thing, uh, and I, I want him to try them out before you necessarily go and do it yourself and spend the 5,000 bucks and then work out that actually you, yeah, I don't know, saw a coin glinting at the bottom of the pool, dive down to pick it up and suddenly your, your, your earbuds, um, got waterlogged and then cost you lots of money and then you shout at us. You, Toby won't mind because he wears his earbuds all the time, increasingly <laughs> to protect his ears, his little sensitive, delicate ears. Well, I wondered what the Yuppie Chef founders were going to get up to next following their exit from the business they founded 20-odd years ago. They sold it to Mr. Price, of course. They stayed uh, for a period of time, then left the business and went incredibly, incredibly quiet. I had no doubt that they were beavering away at something, and it turns out that they've gone camping. Andrew Smith is co-founder of Yuppie Chef and now of Brave Hardy. Andrew Smith, welcome to back to The Money Show. You've been incredibly quiet, but I've worked out today why. You've been building a brand new business. Earth to Andrew, are you with us? Yes, sorry, sorry. I'm, I am. I, I replied. Did you, can you hear me now? I can hear you now. So reply again. You've been building a brand new business. <laughs> that, that's right. You know, we, we get a lot of questions about this of um, once we ended Yappy Chef, well, are we going to go and sit on the beach somewhere and do nothing? But uh, Shane and I have this itch to build, to create brands, uh, to 
to, to do things that are ourselves. So in the last year, we have done some consulting and advising and investing, but I think in our hearts was still uh, the need to get out there and do something uh, from scratch again. So what is Brave Hardy? <laughs> Brave Hardy is an, is an outdoor importer, distributor, retailer, maybe one day manufacturer of, of stuff that you need if you're camping or hiking or, or overlanding. And it follows a similar theme to Yappy Chef. You know, we used to say if all you can do is cut a, a, make a tomato sandwich, at least cut it with a good knife and serve it on a good plate. And I think there's a similar thing here about the gear when you're outside. If you're, even if you're not the most avid hiker or, or camper and you, you reach into your backpack and you take that thing out that just makes you feel, wow, it's good to be here. And so that's what we're doing, but from very small beginnings. And it's, um, you know, we didn't, uh, we didn't expect to be uh, on, on the radio six days after, after launching. <laughs> so, so if, well, if you, you announced it. Party, right? you, 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 <laughs> we did announce it, yeah. You put it. So if, you did. If you go, that, if you go to the start the... right now, there won't be a big range, but it's, it's no. a, sort of just a hint of where we're going in the future. And I was actually camping this weekend, and we had one of the tickets to the moon hammocks, and I had a good afternoon sleep in the hammock, and I thought, this is why we're doing it. We're doing it for moments like these. And, and so that's where we started. And the name Brave Hardy, it's unusual. Where does it come from? Well, Shane is actually the, the, the namer. He's, um, he was the co-founder of Yappy Chef. He came up with the name Yappy Chef, even when I didn't like it in the beginning, and it grows, it grows on us. I think that word brave, you know, our strap line is adventure awaits the brave. And when you, when you feel like maybe, oh, I'm not, don't sure, not sure sure I want to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway, Generally in life, that's where good things happen. So, so that's the, the brave part of it, and, and I think it's a good name, and it's got a good reception so far. People seem to like it. As you say, not too much on your website. Um, a few items. There are certainly items that are going to be more adventurously priced. There are items that are things of beauty from the world of camping. This isn't mainstream camping, but it's not glamping either. You seem to be targeting a very clear market. The same sort of people who would have shopped with you at Yappy Chef a tiny fraction of them may be the sorts of people who like to go camping. You really are focusing in on a quite a small demographic here, Andrew. Well, I think that in order to compete in retail, particularly online in 2023, you can't just sell what everyone else is selling. And when that happens, it becomes a, a race to the bottom on price. And so we've gone uh, overseas and looked what, what is available in other places, but not necessarily available in South Africa. And, and we're going to try and bring things to the market that aren't your run of the mill. If, if you want something that, is, that you know where to get, you, you're already shopping there. In order to break into a new market for us, uh, we have to go and find things a little bit out of the usual. And there are literally thousands and thousands of brands in the world, and not all of them are available here. And, and there's product gaps and niches and things. So that's where we're going to start. But that's also where we started with Yuppie Chef. We launched with 32 products, and um, and then it grew from there. So we'll see where it goes, where it takes us. I think we, we want to be part of the ecosystem as well. You know, camping is is involved all sorts of other uh, activities and um, getting involved in the, the, the places to go, helping people choose a place to go, um, guiding them on those journeys. So there's interesting things in terms of renting equipment, in terms of vehicles. So there's a whole ecosystem out there that I think we're dipping our toes into and, and seeing where it takes us. Um, again, I wondered why your, your kids were such committed scouts, but really they were just, I don't know, were they, <laughs> is that how you were testing the market? I mean, 10 years ago, you sent your kids into scouting um, so that they could yeah. uh, sample the wares, I suppose, of, of the world of camping. 
Yeah, it is. It is incredible what our uh, Manchu boys have been able to do in Scouts and just to see them head out into the wild, you know, leave their screens behind, leave their phones behind and go and just enjoy being somewhere. Even if uh, even if all you're doing is sitting on a chair and looking at a mountain, it is, or in their case, probably sitting on the floor. It, it, that's, I think, where it seems to be a trend. You know, when we when we announced Brave Hardy last week, people have said to us, wow, this really is on the app. And it is an, it's an interesting place to be. I think we are, maybe it's a post-COVID thing or maybe it's just everyone being tired of uh, technology in their lives that they're saying, actually, we need to get out there. And we want to help um, the 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 hardy type of adventures but we also want to help the everyday people maybe they've never done it before and we can say well here we go this is this is this is a little thing that will help you and um, get out of the house and get on the road and, and experiment with with something new does it feel as exciting as it did the first time around because i mean i, I meant i said 20 years ago for yuppie chef but i'm probably not far off in those days the yep. internet was but a puppy um you know there's, <laughs> it's a far more cluttered and competitive space today what's it feel like this time around it feels almost the same. You know, we, and we, we launched Yuppie Chef in 2006, and it took three months to make our first sale to someone we didn't know, and her name was Denise. Um, and this time we launched, and we, it, took a, it took a day to sell to Neil, someone we didn't know. And I felt exactly the same, and Shane felt exactly the same. We thought, wow, someone has come to a website that they definitely don't know, and they have um, given us their money, and they trust we're going to send them their thing that they ordered. It's, it's an absolute thrill uh, to be doing that. And I think that's the – if people who have that entrepreneurial – bug um, well maybe it's maybe more like a drug uh they they have to keep doing it <laughs> and uh, so absolutely and and just before taking your call this evening we we are we're working on it um doing all the bits and bits and pieces into building a brand from scratch it it, it is a real it's a real rush actually so you disappeared there for a second and i was postulating as to whether or not you could sell, sell a foolproof cell phone that works in load shedding and a million miles away <laughs> from a cell phone tower but that's probably not on the agenda just yet uh, no, and I wish I could tell you I was in some distant mountain, but I'm, I'm in the heart of Cape Town, so unfortunately not. No, exactly. Well, the, 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 I think the worst cell phone signal in the country uh, is in the heart of Cape Town. Andrew Smith, we'll leave it there, but thank you. Co-founder of Yuppie Chef and more recently of a business called Brave Hardy. Um, and if you go to the Brave Hardy website, you can be quite underwhelmed uh, initially uh, because there are just a handful of products. But uh, I have... The Money Show. Business books. And on to Ross Atkins we go. Ross Atkins is with the BBC. He is also that guy who is able to explain almost anything to anybody. I say almost anything, but I haven't tested him on this just yet. Ross Atkins, welcome to The Money Show. The art of explanation, how to communicate with clarity and confidence. How did you start this idea of explaining complex concepts hi there great to be on your show well i suppose journalism in in many forms is about how we take important and complex issues and events and try and explain those to our listeners or our readers or our, our viewers and when i was getting going as a bbc news anchor a few years back it struck me that i needed to pay close attention to the subject matter of course but i also needed to pay very close attention to how i was passing all that information on and i became more and more preoccupied with how I could explain things clearly and how I could make complexities feel manageable and consumable. And the more I did it, the more I realized it wasn't just helpful in my journalism and my work as a presenter, but I was 
actually using these kind of things when I was going to the doctor or if I was dealing with my kid's school or perhaps someone was coming to do some work on our house or whatever the example might be, important work meetings or presentations. And so it seemed to me that that paying very, very close attention to the way that we whatever point we're trying to make is useful, not just as a journalist and broadcaster, but it's actually useful to all of us. They, were, were some of your colleagues sceptical? Were some of your colleagues sceptical about the, the longer form explainers that you've developed and developed a global reputation for delivering with such gusto, such precision and with such aplomb? Well, thank you very much for your for your kind words. I don't know if people were sceptical. I think there was a there was a broader thing, especially in the 2010s, as social media became one of the dominant ways that we all consumed information, that perhaps we all concluded that the only way to get anything across was to do it in 60 seconds or less, and that if it wasn't short and snappy, then you didn't have a chance. And I was always convinced that if you assembled information in a way that was interesting and informative and engaging and something that both helped you understand the world, but you also enjoyed watching, that actually people would watch for, for much longer because I could see lots of evidence, whether it was on Netflix or BBC iPlayer or uh, podcast platforms or YouTube, you could see lots of examples where people were watching for much longer. And so I made a calculation that if I asked the audience to give me more time than perhaps they would in a regular snappy social media video, that they would if we assembled the right information in a way that was helpful and and engaging and so on. And to our delight, they started getting shared very heavily. And I think, you know, even people who were uh, a bit unsure whether they could work were, were convinced by the end of it. Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, there, there was no guarantee that they would land. Our attention spans are a lot shorter, but you've proven, I think, the case that people will gravitate to great content. And, I mean, journalism should be explaining complexity. And I, I imagine you find yourself in the firing line, if not from time to time, then quite often when people disagree with your analysis. How do you structure an argument with absolute clarity and precision, focusing in on facts and remain impartial in some fairly difficult circumstances. Perhaps, you know, now is as good a time as any to talk about the complexity of the the, the war in the Middle East, for example. Well, you're right. There's a huge amount of scrutiny of how we cover the Israel-Gaza war. But to be honest, if you're on BBC News, there's going to be a huge amount of scrutiny on whatever subject you're doing and, and quite right too. The, the thing that I try and do, and in fact, you've used the word facts in your question, is when I'm making one of our videos, I don't expect you to accept what I'm saying because I'm a BBC journalist or uh, because I'm a BBC news anchor, though, of course, I hope being from the BBC will mean that you're inclined to trust me. But I don't use that. I don't rest on that. What I try and do is say, look, the conclusions I'm drawing are because of this information. And I try and construct not just an explanation, but an analysis with you as you're watching. So I'll say, okay, here's one factor and here's the evidence for what I'm saying. Here's another factor and here's the evidence for what I'm saying and the evidence for how they connect. And so each step of the way when I'm constructing these explanations in our videos, I'm providing you with the reasons why. So that if you're watching going, well, how come he's saying that? Actually, you know why I'm saying that because I'm showing you. And that can be incredibly helpful. The other way that we 
make sure that our videos are both impartial and, and as helpful as they possibly can be is we make sure there are lots of eyes on them. I don't make these videos in isolation, of course. I make them with brilliant, brilliant BBC journalists, and then they go through the hands of many brilliant BBC editors as well. And so I've always been a big fan, and you'll see this if you if you look at my book. I'm always a big fan of asking for second opinions. I don't think that I'm automatically yeah. going to get it right, though I hope, of course, I am. So if I'm unsure about whether a video has particularly addressed one aspect of a story or been particularly helpful enough on one aspect of a story, I'll ask colleagues and often they'll say, yes, you're okay there. Other times they'll say, no, I think we can alter this a little bit. And so uh, as we work as a team, that also gives us the best chance of being impartial and factual and helpful and all the things the BBC would always want us to be. Uh, there's always a race on social media, the race to be first, the race to get a point of view across, the race to get an explanation out rather than to pause and to ponder. And I get a very clear sense from uh, going through the book and, and watching your work over many, many years that you are not going to race to be first. You'd rather be right than first. And I think that's uh, an absolute skill and a lesson we can all draw from the book, because the book isn't just about journalism. It isn't just about fact-based research. It's about how you or I, how one, um, can best present one's argument, whether it be in the workplace or whether it be socially or whether you're going to go and start a political party, which you interestingly don't discourage. But <laughs> I, it, you, you seek to make it an accessible skill set for everyday life. Well, that's very kind, and I've, I've got absolutely no intention of uh, of going into politics, which is probably why I don't I don't mention it. But you're right; the message of the book is that if we all pause before we communicate, whether it's in really big moments like going into a job interview or a big presentation, down to smaller day to day moments like a meeting or a quick pitch or an email that you're sending, when we stop and think, well, hold on. What is it that I'm fundamentally trying to communicate in this moment? What's the information I need to pass on to do that? And crucially, who am I passing it on to and in what circumstances? Because when we're communicating, we don't communicate in a vacuum. We're communicating specific information to specific people at specific times. And in my experience, whether as a journalist or outside of the news as well, when I stop and think about those three questions, what do I want to pass on? Who's it for? In what circumstances are they receiving it? I can calibrate what I'm passing on much better and the chance of it being effective, uh, you know, goes up. The other thing I try and do is I try and empathize with who I'm communicating with. I try and think, well, what would the things might be that you would be skeptical of? Or what are the what's the information that you would like to ask me for? Or what are the aspects of the thing that I'm trying to persuade you of that you're more likely to have concerns about? And if I can anticipate those things and in advance think through my answers to them, if and when you raise those concerns with me, at least I'll be in a situation to give you a clear, concise, consumable answer. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to agree with me. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go with the idea I'm pitching or watch one of my videos to the end. But I guess the case that I'm making in the book is that when we all stop and pay attention to how we communicate in the big moments, the small moments and everything in between, we give ourselves the best chance of being heard. And if you can do that systematically in the workplace in particular, my experience is that over time there's a cumulative effect that it can be reasonably transformative. You, you talk about essential detail. And again, that's the trick of a solid news report, the inverted pyramid structure, for example, knowing what's really important, sticking it up front. Information becomes less and less important as you go down. And more importantly than perhaps all of that, 
knowing what to leave out. And that is mm. the real skill when it comes to the art of explanation. Yes, I love thinking about what we leave out because it seems to me there's a relatively simple equation. If we, you, me, everyone listening, thinks about their life today. Just today, there'll have been more information coming at us than we can possibly consume. All those WhatsApps, text messages, emails, phone calls, podcasts, programs, videos, you name it, all coming at us. We can't possibly consume it all. And so when we're all communicating with people, we need to remember they're having that same experience too. So every single thing that we say to them is adding to the pile of information coming their way. So it's a very competitive environment. And my calculation is always if I've got, say, 10 things to get across, and I know that someone has not got very much time, it's better for me to choose in advance. Well, actually, these three aspects of my message matter the most. And to prioritize them and accept the other seven may need to wait for another day. Because if we chuck too much information in people's direction, there's a risk that they feel overwhelmed and tune out. Or there's a risk that they focus on the least important bit of information, while as the really important details fly by through no fault of their own. That's our responsibility, not theirs. And so you're you're quite right. We have to be brave about what we want to leave out. And we can all think, can't we, of being in meetings where someone is making or trying to make 101 <laughs> points. And in the end, you're not entirely clear what mattered most or what they want you to act on or what they don't want you to act on. And so when we can make these decisions in advance and say, I'm going to leave some of this detail for another day because I'm really focusing on just getting these points across in my experience we speak with much more conviction more precision and we give ourselves the best chance of the people we're dealing with engaging directly with what we're saying and that can be really powerful whether you're in a negotiation or whether you're in a meeting or frankly even if you're just sending a, a whatsapp or an email if the email's a foot long is someone going to get to the bottom of it if it's short consumable easy to act on there's a much greater chance people will see it and do something about it Ross Atkins, thank you so much for joining us this evening on The Money Show. The book is The Art of Explanation, How to Communicate with Clarity and Confidence. And really, it is spectacular. It should be in everybody's library because everybody is a communicator to a greater or lesser extent. And you can only benefit from reading from one of the world's great communicators and acting on the, on the guidelines that he peppers the book with as well. In terms of acting on the information, of course, it's pointless reading the Bruce Whitfield on Cape Talk. Cape Talk. Welcome to the Money Show this evening. It is 25 minutes to 8 o'clock, and our How I Make Money feature tonight features a man called Mark Sham. He's been on the radio many times before. He's a speaker. He is the founder of Suit and Sneakers. He also has a fabulous venue where he hosts top flight events. And more recently, I've got the sense that he's been spending less and less time <laughs> at the venues and more and more time on the road, Mark Sham. Now, Mark, tell me about uh, what you've been doing with uh, Like a Tourist because you've been truly connecting yourself uh, to the world in, in weird and wonderful and uh, hopefully luxurious ways. Good evening. Hello, Bruce. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to definitely... Talk to me about Like a Tourist. Uh, I, Where did it inspire you? Yeah, sure. I, I, um, I've been an avid traveler my whole life, uh, and I've been posting about my travels for the longest time. But it was actually during COVID when we couldn't travel abroad that I needed to scratch the itch somehow. And when they opened up uh, provincial borders, I just flattened South Africa. 
And there were so many trips that I did in 2020, 2021. And whenever I got back from these trips, I would tell my friends about them and they would be like, okay, cool story. And I realized in that moment that you had to show people, not tell people. And so we kind of just came up with this idea to create a brand called Like a Tourist, where we create travel content that hopefully inspires more people to act like tourists in their own country rather than just abroad. And here we are. We'll get back to Like a Tourist in just a bit, but I'm I'm curious as to what your main income source is now, because are you renting out venues? Are you hosting events? Are you traveling? Can you focus on all three at once? Are you a good juggler? Um, talk talk to me about the, the origins of this idea, because on the one hand, yes, you're amusing and entertaining and good at organizing things, so that's lovely. On the other hand, you are, you know, you're, you're this terribly enthusiastic traveler, and I'm trying to work out what the business of Mark Sham is evolving into. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing all of it, luckily, thanks to a, an incredible team. Uh, the venue that you mentioned is um, largely run by a group of us, a team, and they do a phenomenal job. And I've really found that my core value that I offer to the business in that regard is to just bring awareness to what we do. So I run a lot of the suits and sneakers events still at my own venue, and that tends to market the venue. But I have very little to do with the day-to-day running. I travel a lot because I speak professionally for a living like you. And so I get to kind of knock all three together uh, as a result. That's so cool. It really is. Living the dream. How I Make Money brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank built for your business. So the the, the business then of Mark Sham. I will, take us back, please, to little Mark Sham and your qualifications and where it is that you come from. Because what we're trying to do with this feature, Mark, is to try and broaden people's horizons and think differently about an ever-changing world and the world of work where no matter what it is that you study and no matter what it is that you learn, actually you can do weird and wonderful things in the world without necessarily you know, having to spend 20 years at university, which is a good and honorable thing to do, uh, but you don't have to necessarily go about it that way. How did you start out? Yeah, I love this segment, Bruce. I think I'm a, I'm a good and bad example of this because I have no formal <laughs> education whatsoever. Um, I don't even have a matric. Uh, this is part of the, the story that I have. No, I have no formal education. I got kicked out of school when That's I was 17. Yeah. And I guess what that I wouldn't recommend this path to most people, but it does have its benefits in that it kind of thrust me into entrepreneurship from a young age. And I did a multitude of things, but I think the the crowning characteristic of what's really helped me is that I've been a continuous self-directed learner. I've just been curious about the world and I've never bothered about where the information comes from as long as it creates value. So my source of education has largely been YouTube, podcasts, books, conversations with other people. I've learned a lot through those processes. And then there's no substitute for throwing darts at the dartboard in real life and testing what you've learned against the iron law of the market. So for me, that's just worked very well. And I've come to learn that you get directly rewarded as a result of the value that you create for the world. And so you've just got to figure that out, right? It's like a product market fit. And I think being an entrepreneur since I was about 17 has helped me better understand what people find valuable. So with something like Like a Tourist, as an example, I never started Like a Tourist to make money. In fact, I I don't think it's a, a great, I think there's better ways to make your money, but it is so much fun to travel all over <laughs> South Africa. 
yeah. and document, you know, not just like I think South Africa's got terrible marketing. We tend to think of travel only when we leave our borders. And Cape Town has got great marketing. The Kruger's got great marketing. But, you know, the smaller towns, which I believe is where the soul of South Africa resides, these places need to be showcased to people in a visual manner. And I just see it more and more that when you show people the lesser known spots, the heart and soul of the country, they're more likely to want to visit. And I get the greatest kick out of that. But just back, going back a step, like for me, I've just learned to throw darts at the dartboard, uh, be vivaciously curious about the world. And it's come to work very well for me as an entrepreneur. I've got to ask this, and I hope I don't get uh, you're not uncomfortable answering it, but at 17, getting chucked out of school, that's quite a hard thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's why I say I definitely wouldn't put, I wouldn't recommend this path <laughs> to someone else. But it kind of just I mean, happened the way it happened. You know? yeah. But at that point, when you get chucked out of school, mum and dad get called to a meeting with the headmaster, and the headmaster says, this reprobate is not welcome in the school anymore. Did you consider going to a different school to finish matric, or did you just go, you know what, I'm actually not cut out for this stuff. I'm going to do something different. And did, did, your, did your caregivers support that, uh, that approach? Yeah, and I had a tumultuous relationship with my parents at the time. So when I got kicked out of school, they were adamant that I had to go to another school. And I just flat out refused because it was a mixture of that school specifically that I was at. But also the schooling system has been broken for the longest time. It's also simultaneously the the very reason that we experience the, the level of abundance that we do is because of education. So it's just like weird dichotomy that education, I think, is facing and continues to face. It's why I started Suits and Sneakers. It's because I believe that the future of education would be a blend of formal and informal education coming together. And I think that we're living in a world that's so fast-paced, and we have been for quite some time, that the information that we tend to memorize, there's your key problem there, is kind of outdated by the time we learn it. This doesn't apply to every and all spaces you know i don't want someone watching youtube for three hours and then operating on my brain so i think there's space for <laughs> formal education obviously <laughs> but I, I just you know i learned this with when i first started a marketing business that of all the staff that i had 50 percent were knockouts and 50 percent weren't and ironically 50 percent had a degree and 50 percent didn't and i could not tell which of the people were going to be successful i learned that it wasn't about the degree it was much more about their ability to continually learn and reinvent themselves. And this is a very difficult thing for human beings to do because we we tend to think of ourselves as nouns rather than verbs in a world that requires you to be more fluid. And COVID taught me this in the biggest way. Like you could have your your income that you've been relying on for the longest time and it can be taken away from you. And if all you do is see yourself as a noun, I am a speaker, I am a lawyer, you're going to get really hard done, but I think the world's going to need you to shift. So when I got kicked out of school, I had a big fight with my parents. They said, go back. I said, the schooling system is not for me. And I actually moved out of the house when I was 17, and it started a, a really long path toward entrepreneurship. No, and again, you were forced, I suppose, to come to terms with the decision that you'd made, and you were standing on your own two feet, and it was either sink or swim. And fortunately, 
you swam. And it's at a time like this where uh, it's the end of the matric exams. Everyone's going on holiday. There's uh, Some kids are very confident they'll be fine. They'll get great results. They'll go to university. They'll get their degrees. They'll go and do whatever they're going to do. But many, many kids um, are not going to get a matric pass, are not going to get to university. And so often, Mark, and you would have heard this example countless times before, we're told that without a matric, you're absolutely nothing. You're nowhere in South Africa. Nobody will ever talk to you. Nobody's going to give you a job. You're doomed. And I think that is part of the the reason why the psyche of South Africa is as damaged as it is, because we put so much debt on education. And your story is one of massive inspiration from that point of view, because you have to be nice to have a matric, nice to have a university degree, good to have something to fall back on. But really, it is entirely up to you what you do with the God-given skills that you have. Yeah, let's put it this way, Bruce. When I have kids, I would encourage them to obviously finish school and I would even encourage them to go to university. Sure. But I would constantly be trying to get them to understand that this is like a base level entry version of education, that really the education never ends. You're continuously learning and it's just good to have this grounding that you shouldn't rely on it too much. It's it's a nice to have. But I really would want to teach my kids and any others that you earn in direct proportion to the value of the problem that you solve. So the real trick is to understand what are the meaningful problems that exist for people and how do you create a product or service that meaningfully solves those problems? You know, it's funny, I, I, I get hired by companies all over South Africa to speak professionally for a living. And it's funny because I wouldn't make it past their, their front door in terms of an interview, <laughs> or I wouldn't have in the past. And then they come to no. me and they pay me this god-awful amount of money to tell them how to do it. So it's always just so fascinating to me. I always point this out to them, and then they kind of nod uh, a little embarrassingly so. So I think the world's changing. Uh, is it changing? I mean, do you notice that? Uh, do you notice that on a regular basis in terms of the way in which the world treats kids like you? Um, I'm not. I'm sure I've got that level of confidence in our world. I think our world looks for the easiest way out, and I'm not too sure that necessarily the world is as evolved as you suggest it might be. Yeah, I think a great education or the piece of paper that comes with it will get you a great entry into a, an existing job. So if you're an entrepreneur, I think your education will matter. I'll say somewhat little, depending on again, it depends on what you do, what field you're entering. Uh, if you're talking about getting a job, it's probably more meaningful. If you're an entrepreneur, people don't care. Just can you do the job and so forth. So in the world of entrepreneurship, you know, especially today where you've got social media, which enables you to create your own audience, and you've got all these technologies that allow you to create on the back of, I think most people are just looking for, can you solve solve the issue? Can you do the job? Um I think around the world, you're seeing that there is the inflation of education, that where before you would get a varsity degree and it would absolutely ensure you of a job. But around the world, you're seeing that just having a degree doesn't necessarily mean that you will get a job. So I just think that, you know, I'm generalizing and this topic is very nuanced, but in general, uh, companies around the world are much more looking for people who can solve meaningful problems. But the degree has always been good at signifying to the market that you can solve the problem. But I just, I look at the state of education as a whole, I would definitely not hire. It's the last thing I hire for is someone's formal education on the piece of paper. We've got a very 
different methodology that we use in my business to hire people. And it really has nothing to do with the piece of paper that they come with. So how do you do it? Again, being a small business, I have the benefit of when I hire, it, it depends on the position. Obviously, if I'm hiring for, say, a videography position, that's fairly easy to work out. I don't care about your piece of paper. Just send me your reel. More in spe- specific, I tend to try test with people. And the thinking that I use with them is I'll say, hey, I'm, I've got this job. I pay above market salary. All I'm looking for is a, a, a direct fit. Not just me, you too. So what I'd propose is that we literally just work together on the tiniest project for two, three days together. I'll pay you for that time, but I want to be able to see what you can do. And conversely, I think you want to see if this is a fit for you because a single interview and an hour of your time isn't going to tell you whether I'm a fit for you and you're a fit for me. So I'm more trying to just test. And then I've come up with like a series of tests and tools to kind of work out if that person is for us or not. And most of the staff that I have, we've, we haven't lost a single person. And certainly in, in the last two years, we haven't lost anybody. And it's been phenomenal to work with people that way. But again, that just works for me. I'm a small business and that's my story. No, but I mean, it, it's, not, it's, not the, it's not a terrible idea at all. King Price Insurance, I don't know if they still do it now that they're bigger than they were five years ago. But I remember talking to the founder who says, if in your first month you realize you've made a bad mistake and you've come to this company and you realize that it's, you, you shouldn't be here, well, then we'll pay you a month's salary to go away. We'll say, you know, you want to go? That's absolutely fine. Here's a month's salary. Land gently. Good luck. Sorry it didn't work out. And it's, 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 what's, it's the logic of it is so strong because it says that, you know, you've got to, people have got to fit in an organization and an organization's not going to bend to fit around them. And people either do fit or don't. And, you know, the wrong person in a business can severely damage you. And I mean, we all see that every day wherever we go. Yeah, and I think to get it into the future employee's mind, that it's not just about whether they're a good fit for you, but whether you as a company are a good fit for them. I mean, yeah. you know, it's a, you, you'll spend a lot of time in your job and you want to love it. So I'm always preaching to potentially new employees. I want you to love it here too. So if we just work together at just a base level, I'm talking like two, three days, sometimes a week, we pay for that time. It's just like, Let's just see what you can actually do. Forget the interview, forget the piece of paper. Let's see what you can do. But also, you tell me along the way if you think that we're a fit for you. And we've managed to find the right people that way and hold on to them. And it's largely if you ask, like, how am I able to do a lot of the stuff that I do while still keeping the other businesses more than afloat, it's really down to an unbelievable team. But again, this comes to other topics, which is, what tends to happen within companies is that you hire people and you micromanage them. Whereas I've tried to find the best people and then get them to a point that they understand how, how I'd like things done, but also how the business works, but then get the hell out of their way so that they can do what they're good at. And I guess that just stems from, I hate being micromanaged. Why would I want to do that to someone else? So what process can you go through to find the best people and the good fit and then get out of their way so that they can do a great job? And you've taken get out of their way quite literally by going on an astonishing number of road trips. And I I don't know if the road trips are, reflect the amount of time you take, whether you do it on weekends, whether how carefully you structure them. But you do seem to be on the road an awful lot, which is following a passion. But if it's not making you money and you're leaving the, the your staff running your business, that's quite a high risk strategy as well, particularly in a small business, which when 
things go wrong, they go wrong quite quickly and can be quite financially destructive. Yeah, I mean, good point. Uh, look, it's the road trip started out largely on weekends and, you know, maybe a day or two out of the week. They're happening a bit more frequently now during the week as more clients have come on board. We're very lucky to have a an array of corporates that have started to support our work. So it is starting to make financial sense uh, more and more, especially with YouTube. It's a long game. You know, I, I'm a professional speaker more by trade than a YouTuber. I've had to learn a lot in the last 18 months on the skills that are required to present in a video is very different to being on a stage. So you just learn that along the way. Um, but COVID was good to us in that it taught me how to manage my business remotely. I'm obviously still at the office quite a lot. And we, I'm, we figure out the balance. But I think it's been a great year. It's certainly since COVID, it's been our best year yet from a financial perspective uh, with all across all the businesses. The, I check in with the team regularly, like daily. We're tightly, you know, also remember, Bruce, we're like 10 staff members in total. So you can still yeah. remote control a lot of things. And I think when you, probably when you get past 20, it gets a little bit more difficult to do. So I'm not in that phase yet. I don't want to get to a bigger space and it's working. Yeah, the road trips have been the most amount of fun you can have with your clothing on. <laughs> and I'm not sure that it is always on, but that's, we don't need to learn all about that. <laughs> now, Mark, when, when it comes to producing this content and putting the content online, it's a labor of love. You're putting it out there. You're putting it out there. You're putting it out there. The quality is improving all the time. You bring in a drone. You start doing better and better drone footage. You start creating these spectacular scenes. You start talking up South Africa. You don't, but I don't think you, um, you polyfiller the country. I don't think that you try and smooth over the cracks at all. It's a case of this is an awesome place and I happen to like this sort of adventure. You might not, but that's okay. Let me show you what I like doing. And now suddenly people are catching on to this as an idea and a celebration of the environment we're in rather than this continuous breaking down of the country and the potholes and all of the miserable stuff that you do see each and every single day on your road trips. But you choose to focus on the good stuff. And that then draws, I think, an element of positivity along with you. Yeah, again, during the COVID patch, I was unbelievably vocal of how badly I thought our dear government had handled things. The problem is that when you start talking a lot about what's broken, you kind of fall into this vortex of negativity yourself. And it was actually some of the unhappiest I've ever been when I was constantly pointing out what was broken. I also think it comes down to active citizenship where the, those, a lot of the bad things that are happening in South Africa are kind of out of my control. And if you think about insanity, it really is focusing on the things that you have no control over. So this for me was also a bit of therapy in that I think there's enough bad news that we wake up to every single day, whether you open up social media or the news. So I've long spoken about the tale of two South Africans. We know about the one that exists because we see it in the news and social media every single day. We certainly don't need more reminding of load shedding, potholes, etc. So I think it's more my job to just show the other side. I'm not saying the first side doesn't exist. I'm just saying I can't do much about that. But I can show you that at the same time, South Africa is probably up there with the most beautiful countries of, on earth. And because I travel an enormous amount internationally too, like in fact, right now I'm coming at you from 
uh, Europe. I'm in Zurich at the moment. Like you get to see the the good sides and the bad sides. And there's a famous saying by Thomas Sowell where he he says there are no solutions, only trade offs. And I've long been trying to get South Africans to understand this that there's lots <laughs> of bad in South Africa, but there's lots of good too. And yeah. when you move abroad, you're just trading one set of problems for the other. So depending on what you value will determine about if you're happy or not. And the, probably the greatest asset that we have besides our beauty in South Africa is simply our people. We don't realize it because maybe we're, we're around South Africans all the time. But 95% of the people who live in our country are quite literally the most incredible people on earth. It's just the 5% that runs for everybody else. And that's, I don't know if I would. That's what I'm I don't know if I'd agree with you on that. I don't know. I think it's. I think the the number of good is slightly higher than ninety five. But you know, um, <laughs> really, I do think we are we are we are we are badly done by by a tiny minority of people um, yes. who really lack perspective. But anyway, we can we can argue numbers or not. But but have you worked out a favorite place? Have you worked out a place that you would go back to time and time again and not get tired of it? Is there a spot somewhere? in South Africa that yeah, I, I, you would dare to differentiate from another? No, I don't have favorites per se, because I think it's it's all relative to what you're looking for. So if you're looking for that beachy type of, if, if it, when it comes to small towns, I'm a big fan of uh, Nisner, which is a bigger small town. Then you get smaller towns like Dahlstrom, Clarence, Prince Albert, um, all of those small towns that are like two and a half hours away from Cape Town just like magnificent, you know, the bush, these things are a bush holiday is so different to a beach holiday is so different to a road trip. So I don't have a single favorite, but I can tell you because I've traveled, I don't know, uh, 50,000 kilometers in the last year by car. Like it just, this country is unbelievable. The only thing I would suggest to people is we should stop trying to get to the destination as quickly as possible. <laughs> a lot of the fun when you have a lot of time to research is the journey. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, you know, there's nothing like put your foot down and drive and see if you can beat the your record through the Karoo and get as few speeding fines as possible. Um, and, you know, we all know where, where, the, where the speed cameras are because that's how the, the councils of Langsburg and others make their money. Um, we know how they make their money. Uh, when, you, when you look at this, this wonderful fruit salad that you've created for yourself, Mark, is this, you know, is, are you happy with this mix? Is this the beginning of something bigger is it the beginning of something different i wonder if you're just happy to go with the flow and go with ideas as and when they assault you no it may look like that on the outside but there's a very clear plan um we're starting to do a lot of investing in in terms of property and a bunch of other things it's a little bit difficult to get into it now and i know we might run short on time so there's a clear strategy there but i'll leave you with the idea that if you own the audience you control the narrative this has been super helpful to me. I've got a Facebook page with half a million people who follow me, all my other social Whoa. media. Uh, you know, my, my other channels are, are starting to grow and grow because I create content that speaks to an audience and rarely about me. And once you start to build a relationship with your audience, um, you you know, there's, there's a variety of businesses that can be drawn from that. Um, I never take the audience lightly or for granted. But there's a very clear strategy. Uh, I'm on my way to becoming a billionaire. Not right now. That My bank account definitely does not reflect it today. <laughs> but I have a very clear goal of, of 
you know, I, I talk about becoming a billionaire quite often. Now, whether it happens or not is irrelevant. And the main reason about becoming a billionaire is actually because money is energy that you can create with. There's so many entrepreneurs across the country that just need a helping hand. I, if I had the kind of money that some of these people had, I'd be living life very differently because I really don't want for much. I've got everything that I, I want. You know, I have a home. I have a car. I, I get to travel whenever I want. I'd be using the money to to enact positive change. So that's actually the only reason why I want the money, and we've got a plan to get there. That's a wonderful story. Mark Cham, beautifully told. Thank you very much indeed. He is a speaker. He is the founder of Suits and Sneakers. He is a world traveler, and he is the founder of something called Like a Tourist. If you haven't seen the videos that he's making, there are truly things of great beauty, deep thought, and enormous empathy with the country in which he travels predominantly. Tonight, from Zurich, Mark Cham, thank you very much indeed.